0: Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. We are proud to announce a 10,000 euro commitment of Visegrad Insight and Respublika Foundation to a Future of Ukraine Fellowship. This fellowship is meant to support Ukrainian analysts, journalists, uh, public opinion influencers who've been working on the topic of democratic security, aligning with our goals for democratic security of the region and whose work might have been up interrupted by the war. Uh, we're looking for applicants, for recommendations uh, of such persons, but we're also challenging you, our subscribers, our listeners, to pledge and um, double the amount of, uh, of the fellowship that we put forward. All of the proceeds from our subscriptions uh, and the donations that you can um, uh, you can uh, have through our website uh, will serve that purpose at least up until we uh, top it up with uh, 20,000 euros. So the challenge is up there and we ask you to contribute to the democratic security of Ukraine that is the democratic security of Central Eastern Europe and Europe, not to mention a broader context of the world order. This is 21st of March, 2020. Kamil Jarończyk, Miles Maftian, Wojciech Przybylski speaking. Uh, we are here at uh, Visegrad Insights uh, podcast studio. And uh, we are discussing the weekly outlook on the important events of the upcoming week and also putting some focus on the stories that we've been recently publishing. So Kamil, why don't you give us an overview of the three top picks from the weekly outlook that has just been published.
1: Thank you, Wojciech. It's uh, the three of many, of course, because because it's such a jam-packed week as always. But uh, something that really eclipses the situation in Central Eastern Europe is the uh, refugees coming from Ukraine. As of the 19th of March, 3.4 million refugees have fled Ukraine since uh, the 24th of February, which was the first day of the war, Uh, according to the UNHCR. 2 million in in Poland, uh, 500,000 in Romania, 360,000 in Moldova, uh, 305,000 in Hungary, and 245,000 in Slovakia. Uh, Other than Poland, most of these countries um, don't have a population above uh, 10 million. These are quite astonishing numbers and large numbers, which. the population has been mobilizing to to accept but uh, material conditions are material conditions and on the 24th to the 25th of march the european council will discuss russian military aggression against ukraine security and defense energy economic issues and others but uh, what's important is that the u.s president joe biden will be joining eu leaders during the first day of the european council for a discussion on uh support for ukraine and its people and on strengthening transatlantic cooperation in response to russia's aggression this will be the first um This will be the first uh, visit of President Joe Biden to Europe since the invasion in Ukraine. Uh, Most of the region is dealing with these refugees. Um, That's uh, something commonplace uh, throughout most of the countries. And and
0: most of the countries of Central Eastern Europe are not asking, uh, or none of these countries is asking the European Union for a relocation scheme, which is an interesting thing also Mm. to observe, uh, that the countries still... Uh, criticize the the decisions of the EU from 2014 on the on the relocation quotas um, But we'll see how how how, how long, long this actually um, Can be in such a limbo. Exactly. But
2: of course, you can actually see that Poland is at the center um, of a lot of, of international uh, publicity right now and this visit will also be interesting because we do know that um, Duda and others have actually Supported donald trump and did want donald trump to actually have the nomination, but you can see that biden biden coming Everyone actually is here for the humanitarian crisis right now everyone from the west are actually in the same Response have the same response.
0: Yes, we we see that and also we see that um, the government uh, has little room to maneuver to do the ugly things in terms of the narrative, disinformation that were uh, there before, but this is not that they stopped Completely. That's right. Uh, when it comes to Poland, when it comes to Hungary, mm. well, that's another story.
1: E- exactly. Um, uh, just quickly, um, just quickly, it's worth mentioning that uh, Poland and Hungary actually have a national friendship day, uh, but uh, it's actually been postponed uh, as it was coming up. Uh, the celebrations
0: were postponed yes. as the president of Hungary was supposed to come on the 18th, 19th of March. Yes the um, The two nations' friend friendship day is mm-hmm. usually celebrated on the twenty third of March. Um, yeah, but right. now it is being postponed, as the official announcement on the president's page uh, says, uh, by mutual consent, and uh, with no relationship whatsoever to the Hungarian position on the war uh, on Russia. <laughs> so, uh, in diplomatic terms, that is as um, straightforward as it gets.
1: Really. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, just some Visegrad news in there uh, between uh, two old friends having a little bit of a quarrel. Um, uh, but uh, what's uh, very important for democratic security is uh, in Bulgaria, the ex prime minister, uh, Boyko Borisov, it took three elections in Bulgaria to, uh, t- to take him out of power, uh, has been detained by Bulgarian authorities. It is still unclear as to the uh, what the allegations are, but it's suspected that it's connected to the, the EU prosecutor's investigation of the mishandling of EU funds. The police raids came after a two-day visit to Sofia by European Chief Prosecutor Laura Koevsi. Koyevs, uh, yes. Uh, so, um, uh, so uh, in Bulgaria, um, in general, the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, the new Prime Minister in Bulgaria, has called that his government is uh, attempting to end corruption in Bulgaria.
0: The corruption is definitely uh, high up on the agenda of uh, all the US. This directly is uh, linked to what uh, Ukraine is fighting. Uh, the Ukraine is also fighting a Russian model of uh, political patronage through co- corruption, through promoting oligarchs and uh, the shady businesses. Uh, there were also cases. I think if I remember correctly in in Serbia um, or other uh, countries where politicians of of non-existing, virtually non-existing parties of two-person parties uh, um, all of a sudden started to spend lots of money and nobody would know where they come from. Uh, That kind of political corruption is being also uh, uh, fought by the Slovak government. with cases and of, of of people being arrested tied to mafia, this is uh, al- also securing uh, the backyard, the European backyard, in a way, um, by by uh, you know uh, reclaiming agency over over um, democracies by by law and order, right. um, and the prosecutor general, the, the prosecutor of the EU, has also uh, pledged to seek ways how to uh, put forward charges on war crimes against Russia and also in order to uh, size uh, properties um, in the EU uh, of, of Russian um, individuals or Russian state, general, uh, generally speaking, um, that would be used also as uh, later war reparations. Uh, for for Ukraine. So a lot of that is happening and all on the grounds of not just fighting war. Russia still hasn't declared war on Ukraine. This is fighting illegal crime uh on a mass scale on a global scale that uh, where Russia is uh, in the center of it. Um well other than that I mean we we had quite a week uh, yes. in in um, in Visegrad Inside, in terms of stories and uh, things that we covered. One perhaps most uh, uh, controversial and very very strong op-ed that is uh, on our side is by Irina Podoliak, a former minister, of, a former deputy minister of culture of Ukraine in which uh, in strong words uh, she speaks against uh, the, the narratives and the search for uh, so-called good Russians um, across the globe. We've seen that in the past weeks, how much of the media coverage was uh, on focusing on, on cases of anti-war protests by individuals on public TV, on um, in, in the streets. Uh, and Podolyak writes uh, in essence, uh, but again in much stronger words, uh, in essence that the attention of the world is misplaced as the majority of the Russian society uh, is at best silent uh, and more often uh, supportive of uh, the uh, criminal actions of their own country uh, against Ukraine and with some appetites also to uh, use uh, force, physical force and violence against other uh, uh, countries of Central Eastern Europe, that said, she makes a big accusations that there are no good Russians, um, to which uh, one of our Visegrad Insight fellow felt compelled to, to respond. Pavel Havlicek presents also the case of uh, how the Russian uh, civil society has been at least partly uh, opposing Putin, not as successfully even close to successful uh, as as Belarusians in 2020, and yet they still have Lukashenko, but um, but um, in hopes uh, that uh, there are still good people uh, in Russia uh, who will, in time, um, uh, be able to uh, lead this nation uh, to uh, at least more democratic future. Now for the. Next part of the podcast, we have to share um, an interview, uh, Miles, you had with one of our authors. Um, so why don't you uh, uh, start?
2: Sure, sure. So basically, uh, Adela Klekova and I sat down and we talked about one aspect of uh, of the war right now, which is the cyber warfare, um, the cyber warfare part. And in in this interview, you'll actually see one very, very interesting. Mm, highlight, which is the sort of civilianization uh, and the the volunteer groups of of cyber hackers, Um, more than 400,000 who have actually joined. So stay tuned. Um, There's a lot of great information in there. I'm here with Adela Klekova, uh, she's a security analyst with a focus on hybrid warfare. Currently, she's researching new forms of civic activism in the virtual space as a non-resident fellow of the German Marshall Fund. Hi, Adela. Thank you so much for being here with us.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
2: So. Essentially I wanted to talk to you a, a bit to briefly assess the the cyber operations that that we've seen in Ukraine so far and to compare them with what cyber warfare analysts were expecting. But of course this is such a large subject that first we want to actually start by, you know, telling our listeners what we mean when we say cyber operations and if you could give some concrete examples from both the the Russian and the Ukrainian sides, that would be a a great first start.
3: Excellent. Thank you for this question. So I think that I will start uh, with explaining what the cyber war actually is. Because many people who I talk to imagine the cyber war as something that they have seen in sci-fi movies. Right. So usually they imagine, you know, the mankind being on the edge of the doom, being attacked by uh, an alien, uh, aliens or robots or whatever other technology that went wrong.
2: Right. And
3: then they see this manly, muscular hero, you know, typing a few lines of code on the keyboard and pressing hectically enter. And in that very second, this technology that is threatening the future of the mankind is just being turned off. But I mean, this couldn't be further from reality. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that the cyber operations are very difficult to prepare. It takes weeks, months, years even, and therefore it is very difficult to align them with the kinetic operations that, as we know, are very agile, very fast, very unpredictable. So just give you an example, during the war in the eastern Ukraine in 2014, out of the 1,800 1800 cyber operations and 26,000 kinetic operations, only very few of them were aligned. So if someone says we were expecting, uh, Ukrainian hackers to be taken, to be taking down Russian tanks or vice versa, don't believe them. Right. (laughs) So what, what we were expecting are two things or what we were expecting were multiple things, but the two most important things were, uh, the very primitive, but very efficient cyber operations such as DDOS attacks or the defacement attacks. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has been happening since the very beginning of the war. So we were correct in this regard. What we have not seen yet and what is personally surprising me is that we haven't seen any severe attacks against Ukrainian critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Because we know that Russian loves these SCADAS, which are the system controlling the uh, the heavy machinery and uh, power grid. So we know that Russians do have a very good knowledge about the power grid system, about the transportation, about the, uh, piping of the, of the Ukraine. They know where are the bottlenecks. They know where to attack because they have been mapping, mapping the infrastructure for quite a few years, but we haven't seen any attacks of this kind yet. So, and I, I was wondering why I was thinking about this very, very hard. And I think that the, Two potential solutions or potential uh, answers I can come up with is that first the Russians simply believe that uh, the bombs are doing much better and efficient work, so they do not want to they do not want to attack the in uh, the critical infrastructure in the cyberspace. Or the other solution could be that simply they are too busy defending their own cyber infrastructure, which which is being under heavy attack for the last couple of days
2: right yeah actually that's that's a that's a really good mm, segue to to the other question that i had and that's to say that you know right now we are at a critical juncture for security in the region i think this is a this is an understatement at this point but one of the elements that that i find incredibly interesting is sort of the the global momentum to to join the fight in some way Right mm-hmm. and of course, cyber warfare plays a critical role here. It's as if for the first time in history, anyone can kind of join this war essentially mm-hmm. from from the safety of their of their own desks. And I know that Ukrainian authorities they, they were estimating that there were some 400,000 multinational hackers who have basically mm-hmm. volunteered to to counter Russia's digital attacks. and of course, these volunteers, they created widespread disruption. so my, my question is is, is it safe to say that we have never seen this level uh, of involvement by outside actors unrelated to a conflict? And if so, what does this mean for cyber warfare if future attacks are to occur in the region?
3: So so definitely these are unprecedented times that we are seeing in so many ways and the involvement of the non-state actors are one of them. So mm-hmm. my, myself, I have written Research on the cyber elves, who are people who are countering uh, Russian information operations. Right. So, and their role in the conflict was very paramount. I mean, what they have been doing—the the thousands of cyber volunteers countering Russian information, not only in Ukraine but in the Central and Eastern information space—that was just very admirable and absolutely unprecedented. Mm-hmm. But perhaps what is happening in the cyberspace and the people countering not the information, but the cyber operations is even more amazing. So just let me start from the very beginning. At the beginning of the war, the division of the powers were clear. On, On the evil side, on the dark side of the Russian, there were these cyber men- mercenaries and cyber criminals and all these ransomware ha- gangs, such as the Conte and of course, the Russian uh, intelligence, uh, intelligence services. Mm-hmm. On the side of the Ukraine, on the good side, there were mostly the cyber activists. So the good people who they're doing it, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, not for right. any financial motivation. The, the most, the most famous Representant of this hacktivist movement were the Anonymous, which I think everyone knows. Yeah, of. for sure. Well, however, as the war proceeded, the situation got significantly more messy. I think that one of the very important moments wo- was when this Conte movement, which openly supported Vladimir Putin's war, got hacked from inside and um, their uh, internal communication got published. So it was a very, very big reputational problem for the mm-hmm. Conti gang. Also, arrests of multiple of their members have, uh, of their members happened. So th- this was this was basically the deal breaker in my mind. Right after that, after that, many things happened. First thing that happened was that quite a few cyber criminals. They're suddenly rather reluctant to join the war on Mr. Putin's side because obviously they see that they can be counting with consequences. And secondly, we can see that based on the discussions on the darknet, that many of these uh, ransomware groups or mercenaries who are international are being ideologically divided, so they can't, they cannot operate as a group anymore. Because some people think that they should support Russia, some people think that they can, they should support Ukraine. So suddenly there is a misalignment between them. Mm-hmm. And what is very surprising to me, and this is quite new, new information, is that actually some of the uh, gangs that were pro-Russian now offering these services, of course for a pay, but they are actually willing to start target the uh, the uh, Russian targets, which is absolutely surprising. Mm-hmm. So that's why I have actually written in one of my commentaries for the Czech newspaper that even though we were expecting the cyber war, what we are experiencing is cyber brawl, where everyone is basically fighting everyone.
2: Right. So it's kind of, yeah, it's unprecedented in terms of the number of people who are actually involved in this, but also unprecedented in terms of the switching of sides, who's fighting who, and so forth, right? Which which begs the question of, of um, how precisely you can have two different civilian groups fighting.
3: Let me follow up you on this, because I think mm-hmm. that we do not comprehend fully how important this war is in terms of making people choose sides. Because as I said before, these you know, these cyber criminals, they were only after profit. They mm-hmm. didn't care whether a hacker from Iran was cooperating next to a Jewish hacker, they were just all after a profit. But now all of a sudden they are ideologically divided. Mm-hmm. And what's more, this war is actually forcing even companies who were always neutral because you know they wanted to do business with everyone to take sides. I mean, companies are announcing that, uh, you know, that they are going out of Russia. Some of them are actually even uh, declaring bounties for, uh, for hackers who will take down, um, Russian web pages and some of the companies, for example, Micro, for example, Microsoft oh, sorry, Windows go as far as they say that they will not be selling patches to uh, Russia anymore. So suddenly companies are taking sides. This is something that I don't think that we have seen ever before.
2: Yeah, and now it's 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 almost getting to the point now as well where you know even the discussion on China. Um, so there are discussions on whether sanctions should start to go to those other countries themselves who who are still actually working together and trading together with with Russia as well, right? So there is a lot there that's very interesting and i think i think to sort of to kind of wrap up uh, a major question that we're all wondering is who who's winning right uh not just who's winning but with these blurred lines with the as you're saying the different sides how do you actually assess whether one side is is winning in cyber warfare with with traditional warfare with what we see uh, it's easy to state who who's had more casualties who's lost more equipment vehicles or planes and how much land was actually gained from one period to another but what indicators are we actually using when it comes to cyber warfare so
3: so this is a very good and a very difficult question to ask however i believe that you know right now Hmm. mm, we can't say that you know cyber is a decisive area or dimension because i mean the war is happening in all uh, four four domains So and the winner is the that one who will, you know, gain gain the advantage in majority of these domains. That's right. So just having said this to go back to your question, I think that even though it is still difficult to to predict this because the war war is ongoing and as you said, the cyberspace is not the the most transparent domain. So just judging by the international support right now. It would be Ukraine because, as you said, it's not only the Ukrainian secret services or Ukrainian hackers who mm-hmm. are supporting uh, Ukraine, but those are also people from all over the world. Hacktivists are joining their sites on a daily basis. Even the pro-Russian groups are now willing to, to hack Ukrainian targets. So I even heard, you know, information that the the ukraine has gone from the uh, offense uh, sorry from the defensive into offensive so right now we are even starting to target uh russian cyber um, cyber targets so i think that this is definitely an an indicator that the war is turning on the uh, or that the win, that the ukraine is is turning to be the the winning side in this conflict but however it's still very uh, very soon to say this uh, definitely. In the Czech Republic and in Slovakia, people were very worried when they heard about the Russian forces taking over the nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. And some people were actually worried that these, it is possible to hack the nuclear power plant. So I think right. it might be interesting for you to <laughs> hear.
2: Oh, yeah, that would be great.
3: Excellent. Okay. So. It is very difficult to hack nuclear power plant for two reasons. First of all, the, uh, the the systems of the nuclear power plant are dividing into two groups. The the group that is actually controlling the power plant is of grid, so it actually cannot be penetrated from outside. Okay. Um, while the other group is behind a very strong, uh, and that is you know just the. Outside part of the power plant and that's behind very strong firewall. So that's the that's the first thing. The second thing is that even though someone actually managed to penetrate this internal part of the uh, of the nuclear power plant, still they are implemented very efficient mechanism physical of physical security, which in the moment that the that the power plant would start to, for example, overheat, mm-hmm. to start calming it and cooling it down. So that's the second sort of say safety, uh, safety network. And last, even if, you know, something horrible happened, then, um, the, the physical protection of the, uh, of the core of the nuclear power plant is strong enough to protect us from the most horrible parts of the radiation. So okay. having said this, I think, I mean, nothing is impossible, but I don't think that it's very likely for a nuclear power plant to be hacked from distance.
2: Great, thank you so much. Uh, This was incredibly enlightening Um, and we, we hope to have you back again, Adela.